0: In a fascinating time in 2018, where we can get an overview of a book like Peter in seven minutes, and uh, and basically we know everything there is to know about one Peter now. So my job's easy. Um, the book of one Peter is is one of my like I just love this book. Um, it was really big for me when I um, became a Christian. So when I became a Christian, when I was around 16, um, I journeyed through the book of Isaiah and God. Took me on this journey where he he got me to um, to just read Isaiah and journal journal through Isaiah and so I've still got my notebook for, as a sixteen year old where I just journaled through Isaiah and every chapter and every verse through it. Um, the book I looked at after Isaiah was was one Peter and it was hugely influential for me and and to this day it's one of those books that I turn to and just get excited every time um, I pick it up. Um, it's an incredible book. And and so what we're going to do is over the next six weeks, um, we're going to journey through this as a church. So we'll be doing this in the morning, doing this in the afternoon, um, services. And one of the things I want to encourage us to do is to journey through this together. So like with every series that we do, um, we can come on a Sunday and we can look at this passage and we can journey through it together on a Sunday. Um, but where this really takes root, where this really would um, God is able to really breathe life into is, is if we're doing this in our, in our homes, if we're doing this in our rooms, if we're doing this with our children and with our grandchildren, um, this is where it starts to take root. So I want to encourage us as a family to journey through this together, to talk about it together. Um, I want to encourage you in your small groups to be talking about it. Um, Message your friends. When you read something, like message your friends and go like, what does this mean? Or how encouraging was it when we read this? Um, with children, it's not always easy just to open the word and just go to a four-year-old. This is what, you know, the Bible is saying. It's not always easy to go, um, Eli, to God's elect, strangers in the world scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia. Like, that makes no sense to him. But one of the things we can do with children is take out key words. Um, We can take out grand ideas, but we can take out key words. And so I encourage us with our kids or with our grandkids as we go through this series. um, When Peter's talking about a living hope, for instance, describe what that means to your kids. Describe what that means to your grandkids. Because if our kids get this idea of a living hope, if they are able to take on these key, key ideas that Peter's talking about, it will change them forever. So as we journey through this over the next six weeks, engage with it in your homes. Engage with it with your, with your kids, with your grandkids, um, with your wife or your husband, with your friends, um, to engage with it and allow the Spirit to do what He wants to do. Would you guys pray with me? Father, we want to thank you that you love us. We want to thank you that as we gather here today, your spirit is here. Your spirit is with us and your spirit loves your word. And so, Father, I want to pray that as we open your word, these the words in this book would just come to life. We thank you that you are the author of life. We thank you that you have written your word perfectly And so, Father, as we come together as your family, I want to pray that we would be changed, that we would be renewed um, by your word. I thank you that there is nothing dead about your word, that everything in it is living. Everything points towards Jesus. Everything points towards this living hope that we have. And so, Father, I want to pray that as we venture into this book, as we delve into it, I want to pray that you would bless us for it, that you would meet us where we're at, For those of us who come into this room with a heaviness in our heart, with a heaviness over our mind, Father, I want to pray that you would meet us, that you would lighten our load. For those of us that come in here distracted this morning, Father, I want to pray that you would give us a a crystal clear focus on your word and who you are. Father, for those of us who don't feel like we've been in relationship with you, who aren't experiencing your goodness. Father, I want to pray that you would just renew our minds. I want to thank you that you are the Father that comes running towards us. And so for those of us who are struggling to experience you right now, for those of us who are walking through that valley, Father, I want to pray that your light would overcome the darkness. And that you would be our joy and that you would help us in that in your great name. Amen. well this morning we are going to look at 1 Peter, um, chapter 1 verse one to nine. so if you've got your Bibles or you've got your phones, open them up because we're going to be going through um, going through nine verses of Scripture. So in 1 Peter 1 it starts off Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of his blood, grace and peace to you in abundance. And so really, like, to start this book, we need to understand who the person of Peter was. Um, Peter, if you know anything about the Twelve Disciples, Peter was the leader of the Twelve Disciples. Um, uh, he was in the inner circle for Jesus, so Peter, James, and John are mentioned constantly. That they, the three of them, would spend more time with Jesus than the others. And and Jesus gives Peter this um, profound new name. He takes his name from Simon to Peter, um, and his new name means rock. And John MacArthur writes about the 12 disciples and he has this book called 12 Ordinary Men. And it's a fantastic book looking at the lives, the personalities, the characteristics and the stories of each of the disciples. But he writes this about Peter. He says, Peter's name is mentioned in the Gospels more than any other name except Jesus. No one speaks as often as Peter and no one is spoken to by the Lord as often as Peter. No disciple is so frequently rebuked by the Lord as Peter, and no disciple ever rebukes the Lord except Peter. No one else confessed Christ more boldly or acknowledged his lordship more explicitly. And yet, no other disciple ever verbally denied Christ as forcefully or as publicly as Peter did. No one is praised and blessed by Christ the way Peter was, and yet... Peter was also the only one Christ ever addressed as Satan. The Lord had harsher things to say to Peter than he ever said to any of the others, and all of that contributed to making him the leader Christ wanted him to be. God took a very common man with an ambivalent, impulsive, unsubmissive personality and shaped him into a rock-like leader the greatest preacher among the apostles, and in every sense the dominant figure in the first 12 chapters of Acts where the church was born. The first line in 1 Peter 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus. An apostle, when we hear the word an apostle, an apostle was really simply someone who walked with Jesus, who saw Jesus, Um, and Peter was, um, it is described, the leader of the apostles. It's written to God's elect, strangers in the world, And the strangest in the world that we're reading to is this idea that that Peter is preaching, the book of 1 Peter is preaching to Gentiles. Um, It's preaching to those who um, have received the Spirit in Acts. um, And this is the the theme throughout 1 Peter. Um, We heard in that video that um, God wants these suffering non-Jewish people to realize that they are part of his family, that they are born again into a living hope, a new family and a new identity. And so here we have this book that is focused on, um, on the Gentile believers, on those who were not Jewish, um, understanding who they were, understanding their new identity in who God is and who they then are. And so the, book, the the first lines go on to say that the book is written to God's elect, strangers in the world who are scattered, um, scattered throughout Asia Minor. And so this is the first time that we are reading like a book that is written to a group of people um, that is not the Jews. This is, a, this is where we are starting to really come to grips with this idea that the spirit is global. The spirit is moving throughout all the world. Um, God's people have shifted. And all of a sudden, the world is God's to be able to do and go and, um, and shape how he pleases in regards to mission. Scattered, no longer bound to a people group. The gospel is now global. And so we read that goes on to say that through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of his blood, grace and peace to you in abundance. The sanctifying work of the the Spirit. And so one of the themes that we'll read through this is this idea that the Spirit is is the sanctifier and the Spirit sanctifies us and sanctification is a slow process. It is not this black and white process where we come to know Jesus and all of a sudden we um, we, we know that we are made new, but there is this slow journey that we, that we go on for the rest of our lives because we are starting to learn the habits of our new family. We're starting to learn the habits of how our family talks, how our family thinks. And so as we look at this book, this idea that the Spirit is sanctifying his people um, for obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of his blood is this idea that like Peter, it takes time. We are a broken people and yet our identity is that we are found found completely in Christ. Our identity is that we are newly born, um, that we are found completely in who he is. And so although we are broken, although we carry um, these things from our past, we are made new and our identity is in Christ and we are to learn the habits of our new family. And So the passage then goes on to say, praise be to God, our father, Praise be to the Lord to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because in His great mercy He has given us new birth. When we read the, the book of John in John 3 we read about this idea of new birth, this strange idea. and Jesus describes to one of the leaders of the church at the time, he says, "I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. In verse 6 it goes on to say, "Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to the Spirit. And this is who we are. As we sit here today in 2018 at Jural. we are people who are reborn. And we know that we are reborn because of what verse 15 and 16 says in John 3 about this idea of being reborn. What is this new birth? And Jesus says that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave up his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So we sit here today as people, if we accept Jesus, if we believe in him, we sit here as people today who are reborn. Our old life is gone and our new life has come. We have been given a new name like Simon was given a new name to Peter. Each of us have been given a new name. We carry the spirit. The old is gone, the new has come. In his great mercy, he has given us a new birth. Into a living hope that into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. One of the things that Amy um, talks to me about all the time is this idea: like, how do people live without hope? One of the things that we carry as Christians, one of the things that we carry as people of faith, is this idea that we have a hope in the unseen, that we have an assurance of what is to come that we believe deeply in the mysteries that are so much bigger than us. And not only are they mysteries, we can put a name to those mysteries. How do people live without hope? And the answer to that is, and the truth is, that people cannot live without hope. And it's why we live in a time where sadness and depression and loneliness is increasing. It's why we live in a time where people are setting up temporary kingdoms more and more. It's why we live in a time where searching and longing for meaning is on the increase. We carry this living hope. And the reason that we carry this living hope really simply according to the book of 1 Peter is that we have this through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Jesus defeated death. We sung it this morning, death, where is your sting? And our our hope, everything in our lives, everything that we believe in is placed completely in the person of Jesus. Resurrection is now our identity. That is who we are. We are people who have defeated death. We are people who will never experience the sting of death. Why? Because our identity and who we are is completely found in the person of Jesus. We are people of the resurrection. And so we are not slowly journeying towards death. That's not our journey. We are journeying towards eternal life because we have already been resurrected. We are already one with the Spirit. We already carry God within us and we will know we will never die. The old life is gone. The new life has come. We have been reborn. And do we like, do we experience this? Do we get this? As we came to church this morning, like we are coming as a people. We are coming and gathering um, as a people who have been scattered and are coming together as a family who are reborn. We are people who will never experience death. We are people who will taste eternity for the rest of our lives. And that is something that should bring us so much joy and so much excitement because we are people who are reborn. We have been given this living hope. It is not a dead hope. It is not a questionable hope. It is a living hope because Jesus defeated death. And the trust that we have, the faith that we have, is placed in someone who is alive today. Someone who is with us today. Someone who is deeply relational. Someone who is personal. We are born into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. It's not even a possibility. The kingdom of heaven can never perish, spoil, or fade. It can never decay. Moths can never attack it. The kingdom of heaven will never, ever perish, spoil, or decay. We will never taste death. And so, do we live like we will live for eternity? We live in a time where investing is is really, really is talked about all the time, especially when it's linked with this idea of wisdom. Invest in the right things. Put your money in the right things. Um, the way we talk about getting into the housing market, when we talk about shares, how we use our money, using it wisely, investing it wisely. One of the things that Peter is getting at here is this idea that that we are called to invest in that which will last. The only thing that will last is the kingdom of heaven. Nothing lasts except that which is a part of his kingdom. And the wisest investment that we will ever make in this life is in his kingdom. The best investments that we will ever make is how we love God. It's how we love people. It's how we renew the new earth. It's how we beautify the church, his bride. There was a moment for me last night when the storms came in and um and I, I absolutely love storms. And I, we had so many things that we should have been doing at 6 o'clock to get our kids ready. We were, we were, we were on the back foot. And um, and there was a moment where the storms were coming in. We should have been doing some stuff. And I just sat there and got the kids and we just sat on the balcony and just watched the lightning and we just listened to the thunder um and it was huge and there was this time where instead of going and doing what we should have been doing to get ready for bed we just sat as a family and we watched the storm come in and i talked to the kids about god as we saw the lightning coming down from heaven we talked about god really simple conversations but really profound ones and one of the things that hit me when i was having these conversations is there's all these things that we should be doing in our day-to-day lives um But what is important is how we usher in the kingdom of heaven in the everyday little moments. And there's nothing that I'm going to look back on and go, oh, I should have been doing like more housework or I should have been preparing those kids for bed better or we would have had like a better sleep if we would have spent that time more wisely. The best thing I did with my day yesterday, and I had a cracking day, the best thing I did with my day was talk to my kids about God while we watched a storm come in. The wisest things that we will ever do in this life is ushering in the kingdom of God. And that looks like so many different things. That, looks, that can take so many different shapes and forms. But the way in which we usher in the kingdom of God in the small little moments will shape how we usher in the kingdom of God in the really big moments. How we usher in the kingdom of God in small conversations will dictate how we usher in the kingdom of God with all of our finances. Love God, love people, renew the earth and beautify the church because these are the things that God is deeply passionate about. The passage goes on in 1 Peter, and it says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer great grief in all kinds and trials. These come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. And these words of greater worth than gold stuck out to me so much this week as I was reading this passage. And Steve Frost, when he came in, he talked about, I don't know if we remember, but he talked about this idea of that Specsavers ad where they got people in a room. Has anyone seen this ad? Where they get people in a room, Sandra, my, my faithful, good. They get people in a room and basically Steve Frost told us the story where they get people in a room and they trick them into thinking that they're gonna sell they this this company is gonna buy their eyes off them. And so these people have no idea that it's a trick, but they're being asked, how much will you sell your eyes for? Will you sell them for 50 million? Will you sell your eyes for a hundred million dollars, for two hundred million dollars, for five hundred million dollars? And they set it up really, really well. And none of the people who come in are able to sell their eyes because they talk about the things that they will miss. They talk about seeing their children. They, they talk about seeing a sunset. And they cannot put a price on their eyes. It's this fascinating commercial that look it up on YouTube. One of the conversations that me and Amy had the other day, we were driving in the car and, um, and we just had this like realisation. And we've had it heaps of times, but it was just this really profound realisation for us that like we wouldn't sell one of our kids like for any amount of money and there was this moment for us where we sat there and went like would we sell like one of the kids for a million dollars you know like take away like that like society and culture would think that was a really bad thing and people would judge you for it like take that away like just the fact like just the idea of selling a child we sat there and went like we wouldn't sell a child for a million dollars and then we conversation kept going and like they'd been little brats that day too so like people would have got them at a bargain but um but like we sat there and went like we wouldn't sell them for a hundred million dollars we wouldn't sell them for a billion dollars like there is not a price we would put like it's a ridiculous even conversation to have it's a ridiculous thing to think but the conclusion that we had is that we are the richest people in the world because there is not a price that we would put on the children that we have No one could buy them from us. And we all get that, right? We all appreciate that. Every one of us has that. There are things that are so much more valuable than money. These come so that your faith of greater worth than gold. How much is our faith worth? Because it is the most important thing that we have in this life. It is more important than our children. It is more important than our husband and wife. It is more important than everything that we carry, that we value in this life that is really, really good. It is the thing that gives depth and meaning and integrity and beauty to everything that is good in our life. How much is our faith worth? Now, when we're at our best, we know that it is worth more than life itself. If someone was to put a gun to our head, which happens in countries around this world for our faith, what would our answer be? If someone was to say, are you a Christian? Do you believe in Jesus? What would your answer be? Now, that's not something that we can even imagine. That's not something that we can rehearse. For some people around the world, that is a literal thing that is happening day in, day out. Do you believe? With a gun to your head, you see. I think all of us are sitting in this room saying it would be the most difficult thing. But yes, yes, I would. I would say yes, of course. And I don't think our problem when it comes to this idea of like of greater worth than gold. I think deep down we have this faith where we would say yes in a, in a in a moment like that. We would have the boldness to say yes. Our problem in Sydney, our problem in the West, our problem in the hills is the daily, daily moments that we have. It's the daily distractions that take us away from God. It's the amount of things that take our gaze away from being heavenward to being downward. If you think about, and I've talked about this before, and it's one of the biggest distractions in our time, the way we which, in which we use our phones, the way we allow things and technology to dictate Um, what we follow, to dictate who we are following um, is insane. For Christians in 2018, this is a really interesting time for us to be alive because we live in a time of distraction. We live in a time where our gaze is constantly being taken away from God and we need to get a lot better at fighting, fighting for the priority of who God is. Our biggest problem in our lives, I believe, is this idea of daily little distractions that we don't make much of at the time, but just sap us and rob us and destroy us of our joy and our relationship with him. C.S. Lewis says it like this, he says, The safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Peter is writing to a group of people who are suffering greatly. And he says, These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Our faith is of greater worth than gold. It is more valuable than our children. It is more valuable than the most brilliant things that we can think of. At the end of our lives, we will never look back and wish we had, spent, had, wish we had more money, wish we had more security. We will never get to the end of our lives and wish we'd spent more time watching Netflix. We will get to the end of our lives and we will celebrate what we did for the kingdom. We will celebrate how we loved and enjoyed God. We will celebrate how we overflowed that into his creation. And so how we get the mundane decisions right, how we get the rhythms of our life right, how we get the habits of our life right, where we allow God's light to pierce us in every aspect of our lives on a daily basis will dictate so much of our joy. Our faith is of greater worth than gold. We cannot put a price on it. And yet we strive so hard for things that aren't that important. In this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds. These come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. I don't want to look at suffering heaps this morning. We've looked at suffering a fair bit um, over the last two years, we've preached on it a lot. We know that suffering is hard. We know that suffering is really difficult. But the thing I want to look at really quickly this morning in verse 6 and 7, which is an incredible two verses, is this idea that suffering may result in praise and glory and honour when Jesus is revealed. One of the things, there's two stories I wanted to share in this really quickly. This is a huge topic and we're not going to cover it much. The first one was... um, the experience that me and Amy had in this. So when um, Jasper was six months old, you guys journeyed with us and Jasper had um, a, a huge tumour in his brain and a huge cyst in his brain, I should say. And the cyst in his brain was was really, was life-threatening and it was overnight, we went from like not knowing anything that was wrong to being in hospital and, and sitting down with a neurosurgeon and being told our son had to have a major operation. And over the course of two weeks, we, we had this operation and it was um, a really fragile time for Jasper, but it was, also, um, it was also a really difficult time for us. But one of the things that, that hit me and Amy as we, as we journeyed um, through this season was just this peace that we had. We had this really, really strange peace the whole time. From the moment the neurosurgeon walked into our room and kneeled, on, got on her knees and kneeled before us and explained what she was going to do to the operation, to the recovery, which was really complex. We had this profound peace that that God was in control, that He had this covered, that this was going to work out, and we didn't know how it was going to work out, but that he, this was going to work out. And one of the things that we experienced we've had lots of things go on in our lives and we all have. We've all had moments of incredible highs, but we've all, all of us have tasted moments of incredible suffering in different ways. And for us, this was one of those key moments where I look back on and we experienced. It wasn't just something that we got in our minds. It was something that we deeply experienced, this verse. That suffering may be proved, that our faith may be proved genuine and may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. We had this experience with Jasper during that time where we just got this idea that what we were going through was for his glory and we did not know or understand how. It was not logical in many ways, but it was something that we experienced deeply as we went through it this deep, deep peace that God was in control and that he would be glorified through it, that he would be honoured through it. 162 years ago, Charles Spurgeon was preaching a sermon. 162 years ago to the day yesterday. Charles Spurgeon was preaching a sermon at the age of 22 years, and Charles Spurgeon was packing out his church. People were coming from everywhere to come and listen to this guy preach. As a 22-year-old, this guy was a gifted individual. And as he preached one day, 162 days yesterday, um, some pranksters decided to play a trick. And they yelled out fire. They screamed it out with this packed auditorium. And panic erupted. And people started, um, started rushing out all the doors. And, and during this stampede, seven people were killed. And this moment for Spurgeon sent him into a deep depression. He couldn't understand while he was preaching God's word with so much authority how Satan would triumph in a way like that in his church. Surgeon Spurgeon couldn't get his mind around it. And this idea of suffering, Spurgeon got it. Like Spurgeon understood this, he experienced it deeply. And, and one of the things that Spurgeon carried with him throughout his life was this depression. He was one of the most gifted preachers of all time. You read his works now, and I sit there and I am just uh, like astounded at how simple what he writes is, but how profound it is. Um, if we all spent more time reading Spurgeon, and the thing with like authors, like I'd say 150 years ago, sometimes you read them and you're like, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't understand the language that you're using, but the Spurgeon, like you read his work and like he could write now and culturally we would completely get it. He was able to take one verse and write 10 pages on it. And the whole time you're reading his works going, this is just, I need this. I need more of this. He was a gifted man, but he was a man that struggled deeply with depression. And this was one of the key moments that really triggered that for him. He was a man that struggled to get out of bed every morning. He was a man that carried this weight over him, and Spurgeon has this really profound way of looking at the suffering that he goes through and the depression that he goes through. He entitles himself a doctor of souls, and the reason he gives him this gives himself this title is because he knows that he has experienced suffering. He knows that he has experienced the darkness. He knows what it is like to walk in the valley, and he has this line, this um, this this uh, this paragraph that. Uh, that sums up really, really profoundly how he was able through deep suffering and the deep struggle to give praise and glory and honor to Jesus through his suffering. And he says this, This morning, being myself more than usually um, compassed with infirmities, I desire to speak as a weak and suffering preacher of that high priest who is full of compassion, And my longing is that any who are low in spirit, faint, despondent, or even at the point of total despair may take heart to approach Jesus. And really simply, what Spurgeon did throughout the remainder of his preaching career, throughout the remainder of his life, throughout the remainder of him following Jesus in faith, was that he used his lowliness, he used his depression, he used his weakness, and just constantly pointed people towards Jesus. He was someone that in his suffering leaned on Jesus really, really profoundly and had huge victory over Satan um, for the remainder of his life. He was someone who was able to bring praise and glory and honor because Christ was revealed in the darkness in his life. "'In this you greatly rejoice,' says 1 Peter, "'though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials.'" These come so that your faith of greater worth than gold may perish, even though refined by fire, and that they may be proved genuine and may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. And for me, Spurgeon is this example that when we go through things in this life that we wouldn't have planned for ourselves, when there are things that are really difficult, we are given this opportunity to lean more and more into Jesus. Sometimes that is really difficult sometimes that involves us wrestling with God and questioning God and asking him, why are you allowing us to go through this? Why did you do this? Because some of the wrestles that we're going to have with God are going to be really difficult and really profound. Some of the things that you guys are going through right now, like aren't fair. And the thing that Spurgeon did really well, the thing that he did in the midst of his suffering is that he wrestled with God. He lent into God. He didn't just accept it. He challenged it. And when you challenge something, when you wrestle with someone, you are in relationship with them. And in suffering, when we are going through this, the thing that Satan wants to do is help us, is get us to create distance with God. And what God wants to do is wrestle us like he wrestled Jacob, is to walk with us in the valley, is to take our hand and journey through it, even though it's not always how we feel. And finally, what we're going to look at today is verse 8 and 9. And I love this this, um, little passage. Peter says this, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Though you have not seen him. That's who we are. Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. In many ways, we are a bunch of fools coming and gathering on a Sunday morning because we dedicate our lives to something that we haven't even seen. We are united. We are coming together. We are singing songs to God. We are giving our money. We are giving our time. We are giving our energy to someone who we haven't seen. For a lot of the world, we are fools for gathering. We are fools for believing. This is exactly what Peter is saying. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with him with an inexpressible and glorious joy. The thing that unites us, all of us, is that we can see what isn't seen. The thing that we carry, each one of us, is this faith in Jesus. We have these eyes. Steve Frost talked about it uh, two weeks ago, where he talked about this idea of the world behind the world. We have these eyes that can see the spiritual. We have these eyes that see what so many people in this world are yet to see. This is who we are. We are people of faith. This is who we're not. We are not a club. We are not here because we are good at organizing things. That's not the point of why we come together. We are not here because we love meetings. We are not here because we are religious. We are not here because we have to be here. We are not here because this is just what we do. We are here because we are people of faith. We trust in what is unseen, like the heroes of faith in Hebrews 11. We are people who follow the mystery that has a name. We are people of the resurrection. We are people who have experienced, not just people who know, but people who have experienced this new life. We are people who have a personal relationship with Jesus. Do we like remember how crazy that is? All we have to do is talk to someone at our workplace who doesn't have a faith. We are in many ways crazy. We are a people who come together and carry the spirit of God. We are a people of faith. And one of the things that I was reminded of on a weekend away with our leaders from our feast community last two, week, three two weeks ago was this a simple, simple idea that as people of faith, we have a language of faith. And the thing that we need to do is encourage each other in faith and not in works. We are not here to play church. We're here to follow God. We are here to experience His goodness, to enjoy God, and then to overflow that enjoyment, to overflow that satisfaction to each other. We are here to encourage each other in faith. We are here to speak words of life over each other. We are here to push each other further and further um, towards God. We are here to raise each other's children. We are here to raise each other as brothers and sisters, as mothers and fathers, as sons and daughters. We are here to encourage each other in faith, not in church. John 3, verse 6. This verse has hit me so hard over the last few weeks. When Jesus is talking about us being reborn, He says, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. We are at Dural for such a time as this. We are in a time of incredible transition. We are in a time where we are called to allow the Spirit to do what He wants to do. The Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. Faith gives birth to faith. When we encourage each other in faith, then our levels of faith increase. When we love each other, when we lay our lives down for each other, when we encourage each other, what that does is it raises all of us up to do exactly the same thing to everyone else. When I raise one of my kids and I encourage them, what do they do? They then go away and they encourage the other kids. What, do I, what happens when I yell at one of my boys? They go and yell at the other boys or they yell back at me and Amy in times where it's all too much. What we overflow spreads. The Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. And in a time of huge transition for us at Jural, it is so integral that our focus is on the Spirit, that our gaze is on Him, that our conversations are Spirit-filled, that we are a people who bring our word to conversations. When we come to meetings, we bring our Bibles. When we meet up with other people, we talk about the things of God. We encourage each other in the things of God. Because one of the traps that Satan is really good at getting us caught up in is playing religion, is playing politics, is getting us to talk about things that actually aren't that important. We are called to be a family that cultivates faith. The Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. And when we speak a language of faith, we encourage each other to do the same. This is who we are. This is our identity. This is what sets us apart. We are people of faith. We are people who are loved. And as a church, Jura will thrive going forward if we remember who we are, if we remember that we are people of faith, if we remember that we are people who are reborn, if we remember that we are people who carry the spirit of God. As a church, Jura will thrive if we as a people are more excited about his ways than we are our own. We will thrive if we enjoy the Creator more than we enjoy His creation. We will thrive if we prioritize His kingdom in our households over our own. His bride will thrive if we speak to each other in faith with a living hope, with a trust that when we gather, the angels of heaven are gathering with us. When we come together on a Sunday morning, we are not alone. And if we have the eyes of faith to see, we would know there are angels in our midst. Do we actually believe that? And the more that we cultivate faith, why wouldn't more angels want to be here? What a beautiful idea that we are not just alone, we are not alone as people of faith here, that we are gathered in the Spirit. And that there are angels in our midst worshipping with us. Might change how we worship and how how we come. His bride will thrive if we speak to each other in faith. The hills, Sydney, the outback, our Solomon, the Solomons, are all made better if we allow the Spirit to give birth to the Spirit in this place. And this is what we are called to spur each other on in. The best thing that we are ever going to do is to help each other see what we cannot see. We are people of faith. Let me pray for us. Father, we want to thank you that your word is living and active. Father, I want to pray that as we leave today, that you would help us. There are so many things that are trying to rob us of our joy. There are so many things that are trying to steal from us. And Father, I want to thank you that you have filled us with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Father, we thank you that you have saved us, that you have filled us afresh. And Father, as we leave today, I want to pray that you would help us to recognize and remember that our identity is in you, that we are people of the resurrection, that we are not people of death. We are people of life. And so, Father, as we go into our families, as we go into our households, as we go into our workplaces, Help us to spread your joy. Help Help us to for it to be the most natural overflow that comes out of our life. Father, we thank you that you are of greater worth than gold. I want to pray that you would help us on that journey. Help us to enjoy you more as we open your word this week. As we journey through Peter, help us to understand it and experience what you are trying to tell us. And Father, for us as a church, I want to thank you that you love us, that you are guiding us and just help us to be a church that listens really attentively to your word. In your name, amen.